You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Well, good morning. It's good to worship with you this morning. What a great day it's been. Don't you agree? I mean, to come together and to sing songs of praise and the acts of our mighty God and then to watch as baptismal candidates go under the water to experience a mystery of grace, something happening in them that only God can do. I mean, it's been a really good day. Today, uh, we're beginning a new sermon series called I Belong, and it is also Family Worship Sunday, so we have kids in here today, which is always the best. Because the energy in this place, you can hear the whispering and the rustling of papers. It makes it really good. So if you are a kid, first through fifth grade, I want you to raise your hand. Where are you? Tons. All right, now I want you to stand up. Thank you for leading us in worship while you were standing. Go ahead and stand. I like how you stand with your hand in the air. That's fantastic. All right, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to come from wherever you are. All ready? All right, and ready, said go. I want you to come and I want you to fill this spot... Kyle, how old are you? I want you to fill this place all right here. And Pastor Kyle and Pastor Corey, Pastor Jeremy, they're going to give you a, a board with paper and crayons on it. And you don't have to go back to your seat if you don't want to. I want you to feel free. You can, perfect. You could kneeling at the altar. What a great concept. Okay, you can also sit on the floor if you want. You don't have to go back. You get to hang out here in the front with me today. All right? But before you start drawing, I've got some, I've got some instructions. All right? We're going to wait till everybody gets their crayons and their paper. If you get uncomfortable, you need some elbow space, feel free to move around. There's even space on the other side. All right? Look at all these people. This is fantastic. Everybody's getting crayons. It's all the same crayons, just like at the restaurant, so you don't have to fight with your siblings over them. Everybody has the same colors. Welcome to the stage. You've got the right idea, all right? Now, don't start drawing yet because I've got to give you some instructions. Everybody's getting their crayons. Looks perfect. Have a seat when you get your crayons and your paper. All right. What did you say to me? No, you can't play the guitar. You're going to draw, okay? All right. Can you focus on your drawing? Is that all right? Because here's what's going to happen. I want masterpieces. I mean, I want you to pretend that you are the best artists in the whole world, and you already are, because what the great part about kids is, they have the best imaginations. If we would take all of the imaginations and combine them right here among these small, this small group of people, your imagination is so much bigger and better than your parents, it's unreal. Did you know that? So I want you to be great artists, and here's what I want you to draw and color and create. I'm getting ready to tell a story, and it may be a story that you have already heard before. But in telling this story, I want you to think back while you're listening to the story and answer the question by drawing it out on your piece of paper. What does this tell us about God? What does this story tell me about God? First, I want you to put your name, put your first name and your age. My name is Chris, 37. That's what I would put on the paper, okay? That's what I want you to put on your piece of paper. Now, masterpieces. 
Masterpieces. You know what, Jeremy? Pastor Jeremy can help you if you need help, okay? Masterpieces is what I want. And I want something that your mom is better than your mom would put on the refrigerator. I want something that your grandma would stick in a frame and hang it at her house. I need some great works of art. Are you okay with that? Does everybody understand? Shake their head yes and say yes. Parents and adults, grandparents and everybody else who's out in the audience, kids are just doing, who's out in your seats, kids are just doing what Pastor Rick tells us on Monday mornings that you do from time to time. He says he'll get up and he'll tell a story, he'll read from the scriptures, and he'll receive emails, and the email says, Pastor Rick, the story that you told reminded me of the story that happened in my life, or my story, and this is what I learned about God in it. So the activity that we're doing today is that we're writing, painting, thinking, imagining, and we're putting it on paper, answering the question as we listen to the story, what is it that we learn about God? Okay, so are we ready? I'm going to read a story, and I need the artwork to begin. All right, here it goes. Pastor Jeremy will help you so you can ask Pastor Jeremy questions, okay? It goes like this. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large, large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it is already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Today we're starting this series called I Belong. And so we think it is necessary that we gather around the text to think about this God who creates a world and creates a kingdom that you and I belong to. Let me pray for us if I could. Lord, thank you for this great day, for the experience of new life, for the chatter in the room, for the artists and the imaginations, for this great story. Help us, God, please, when we think about this, to think about how this sto- what this story tells us about you. This is our prayer, and it is our prayer together, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to ask you a question, and the question is this. When was the last time that you were really sad? Was it uh, hearing about the death of a loved one, or when the layoff came, or when the divorce papers were finally signed? When he left to go to the lake, that was when you were sad the last time? That's rough. All right, hold on. Very good. (laughs) Be an artist. (laughs) This idea might be a bust. Okay, so when was the last time you were very sad? When was the last time you were very sad? It could have been one of those things. To stand in the shoes of the people in this text 
is a really pretty easy thing to do because we've all been sad. And to stand in the shoes of Jesus is easy as well because we find that Jesus is sad in this text. And perhaps, perhaps you are sad today. Jesus, previous to this event, had just heard about the death of his, of his friend John. John was his cousin, one of his best buddies. John was at the event, the time in which Jesus was baptized, and John was the one who had baptized Jesus. John had been there for all of the special events, and John was killed for entertainment. We enter this story here, not with this happy-go-lucky Jesus, but we enter in with a concerned Jesus, a Jesus who has been beaten down by life. And Jesus does, according to Matthew, what we would do when we're grieving or when sadness comes over us. He just simply needs to be alone. Matthew doesn't tell us what he thought about, what Jesus thought about, or what he did, or, or what, he, what went on in his mind, but he does tell us that Jesus went off and went off to a deserted place. He went off to a remote place where he could be alone. We could speculate, perhaps Jesus was just feeling bad. He needed to go away because he just felt rotten. Or perhaps he was out there kicking the dirt and throwing rocks and yelling at God for a while. We know that he did that at the end of one of the Gospels when he was on the cross. Perhaps Jesus began to think about the end of his life. That he too would fall into the hands of the government and would be killed for entertainment purposes. After all, we read that he was scoffed and he was laughed at, punched and hit with sticks. Perhaps the death of John began to make him think about his own demise. But regardless, here's what we know. Jesus needed to be by himself. And wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? It's like 5.30 on a Friday afternoon when your phone rings. Those people, they come. Those kinds of people who show up at the wrong time and at the wrong place. It's like the solicitor who's, who comes on a Saturday morning when you just want to drink some coffee and read the newspaper. He's there to sell a, a vacuum cleaner or, or a home alarm system or, or soap that will wash the grease off your driveway. He promises that it's only going to be about 20 minutes, but before you know it, he spent your whole morning. It's been two hours. Or that guy who's the close talker with coffee breath, you know, that won't let you have an, a, a word in edgewise. It's those kinds of people that sh show up with Jesus. Those kinds of people with those kinds of needs. The hungry and the broken and the sick. And they come to him on foot and find him. And then something happens. While I would be a person that would hang up on the telemarketer or shut the door or pretend I didn't hear the phone ring, Jesus does something different. Instead of growing angry or running away, Matthew says something really peculiar to me, something that, I've, that I would have never thought of before. He says, when Jesus saw this large crowd, he had compassion on them. He graced them with his presence. And then he begins to heal them and cure the sick. What? Well, what a strange turn of events. The world doesn't work that way. The world doesn't look at people in need and help them out. Yet Jesus, out of his sorrow, begins to have compassion on these folks. Most people believe that this story is a miracle feeding. 
where Jesus gets everybody to eat by taking a few loaves and some fish, and then he goes and he feeds a bunch of people. And we think, wow, what cool tricks that Jesus has. But this story is actually really packed with miracles, packed all over, and this just happens to be the first one. Jesus had compassion. In other words, out of this sorrow, spilled love for the people in need. Just a few weeks ago, I did a wedding, and as I stood among the bride and the groom right here, they vowed to love each other. They went through all the I do's and the I will's, and I said, you know, here's what's in, in store for you, and are you going to, in sickness and the health and the whole bit. And then the scriptures were read to them out of 1 Corinthians 13. Holly and I were married in 1998 at College Church of the Nazarene in Bourbon, Illinois, on the campus of Olivet Nazarene University, and that joint was packed. I mean, there were tons of people. And as I stood there, all with nervousness and anticipation and excitement, the doors opened. And everybody stood to see Holly looking good on her, on her dad's arm as they entered into that room and they began down the aisle. And just as everyone was focused in on her and that dress hanging on to the arm of her dad, looking so good. My grandmother was positioned in the first row, and she turned to me and said out loud, Are you sure? <laughs> She's a lovely woman who asks great questions, perhaps not at the right time. But the question, are you sure, is actually a really great question because 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us, and I told that bride and groom, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, on and on and on and on. And don't you think that it would be wise for the, for the bride and the groom to hold something back? Don't you think that they should just carefully consider how much love they can, they can actually muster for one another, but yet still maintain their cherished individuality? Shouldn't they be more wise? Because turning yourself completely over to another person could be, just frankly, a bit reckless. But love is reckless. It's not wise at all. We've, limit our, we've limited our love to tacos and our jobs and our cars, but love is actually limitless. Love wouldn't keep a good checkbook. It can't keep the balance. Love wouldn't hold off eating a second helping of ice cream. Love goes to the grocery store, breaks the cardinal rule, and shops when love is hungry. Love drives too fast and love is too free with its, with its ideas. Love is a spendthrift and love is not that great at arithmetic because it never calculates things correctly. Shouldn't the bride and groom hold something back? Wouldn't that be the wise thing to do? Well, the church, we, when we gather at this wedding, we say no because we understand something. That is when love is dished out. It's reproduced, it's replenished, it's recycled, it's reduplicated. Love, we find out, is a renewable resource. And in giving, you receive when it comes to love. And there is Jesus in this story. And compassion begins to overwhelm him in the midst of his sorrow. 
And love is poured out on those whose resources are scarce. And there you are, and there I am, and we find ourselves in this scenario and find ourselves in this story, and we're watching this event take place. And an idea springs up within us. You know, that tends to be the kind of thing that happens when you hang around with Jesus. Ideas begin to happen. Maybe you're just one of the disciples, or maybe you're just one of the family members who who are watching, but you start, because you are hanging around with Jesus, to mysteriously have compassion too. You look to the west, and you know that the sun is going down, and not only are the resources of the people who are around you scarce, but your resources are scarce as well. And collectively, the only thing that you can find are five loaves and two fish, and you know that there are over 5,000 people there. The story probably should be called The Feeding of the 20,000, because you know that Matthew wasn't really going to be good at recording the attendance of the women and the children. The first time I heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000 was when I was in Lafayette, Indiana. My parents took my brother and I to a work day at our church, and I remember standing next to Mike Jones, who was our youth pastor, as he painted a mural on the nursery wall. I was about five years old, and uh, as he painted the mural, he told me this story. I remember staring at him as he painted it with his, with, and watched his Adam's apple bounce up and down as he told me the story. There, there he was, so big and so cool, and it was the early 80s. He had a great youth pastor mustache. And he said, Do you know, Christopher, how many people were there that day? Over 5,000. And my response was, Wow! To me, 5,000 was astronomical. It was the biggest number I'd ever heard of. It was a number I couldn't imagine. I could not imagine a number that big. To me, 5,000 was bigger than big than big. And to you, on that day, in this scenario, with just measly loaves and fish, you look around and the number of people that are to be fed is bigger than bigger than big. So you say in your compassion, Hey, Jesus, let's send the people away so they might be able to go get something to eat. To which Jesus replies, curiously, mysteriously, and miraculously, Why don't you give them something to eat? And before you know it, Jesus has taken what you have. He's taken what's in your hand and he's given instructions to have the people sit down on the grass is what Matthew tells us, because on the grass, it's a sign of something new. And the scarcity with which the people came was contrasted with the extravagant abundance that is offered at the hand of Jesus. The Bible does not say, and Jesus did a miracle by multiplying loaves and fish so that the people had something to eat. But what it does say is this, they all ate and were, and here comes the miracle, they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Why in the world 12? Why didn't Jesus just give enough so that all 20,000 could eat? Why is there more left over? Well, certainly there's a reason to believe that Matthew is trying to connect Jesus with the stories, the ancient stories that the people would know. 
There were stories in their history where folks went out to remote and deserted places and they were fed by the hand of God. There were stories by which food was multiplied uh, in their old old stories that they repeated to their children. There were stories by which God held promise for the 12 tribes of Israel. And I've read the commentators and I've studied what these symbolic numbers might mean and I happen to tend to agree with what the commentators say that Matthew was intending to do. He was trying to connect them with their stories of old. But I also think something else. That like 5,000 or like 20,000, Matthew wasn't, what Matthew was trying to do was just trying to tell us that 12, 12 basketfuls left over was bigger than bigger than big. In other words, I think what we learned from Matthew in this passage is that God, in the person of Jesus, is absolutely reckless with his love and his goodness. He's extravagant. It's almost ridiculous. He's effusive and excessive, and he's overwhelming in his abundance. You know what we could do? Let other gods be miserly and limiting and concerned and cautious and careful, maybe even persnickety. Let other gods put their money in conservative accounts and do their due diligence and obey the speed limit. But this exuberant creator goes overboard. In Jesus, we see what God, that God overdoes almost everything. It seems to be the same, not just in this story, but throughout all of the gospel writers. I'm reminded of the story in John chapter 2. You remember the story where Jesus is at a party. It's a week-long festival. It's a wedding feast. And wouldn't you know it, they run out of wine. I'm a Nazarene. I don't know about that, but here's what I've read in the story. At the end of the party, when Jesus, it's at the end of the party that Jesus takes the water and he turns it into wine. And it's not just wine, it's the best tasting wine. Just when everybody's taste buds are on edge and all have celebrated and danced the night away, he brings in the best. And not just a little bit. Jesus is reckless. 180 gallons of the best tasting wine they had ever had. Why? The only logical reason can be And that I can see is that God does things in overabundance. Jesus himself told a few stories that we can read about. I'm reminded of the lady who lost a coin and the shepherd whose stupid sheep went missing and the dad whose son comes home. And when they're found, calves are sacrificed and politicians are flown in on the corporate jets and, and movie stars walk down the red carpet aisle to see the main attraction. It was the one who was lost is now found and it is time to celebrate I'm reminded of the Samaritan who didn't just help the man pull his donkey out of a ditch but in his compassion and his hospitality he was excessive in his care for the man medical bills were paid debts were erased the guy was put up in a suite with flat screen TVs and room service and Wi-Fi Jesus told a story about a farmer in Matthew chapter 13 who was sowing seed. Some fell on good soil, some fell on bad, some fell on thorns, some fell on rocks. Did the farmer have a hole in his bag? Is this what Jesus is trying to tell us? Was he just not a very good farmer? Was he ill-equipped? Or is Jesus trying to tell us something about God represented in the farmer? And that is God is absolutely 
reckless with his goodness. Seed thrown everywhere. If we would read the Old Testament, God gives Abraham a promise. Your descendants will number the stars of the sky and the sands of the shore, and I will bless you and make you a blessing to the nation. Through you, the whole world will be blessed. That is a lot of kids. How he ever got them to soccer practice on time, I'll never know. Jesus spent time telling these stories of God's love and God's overflowing and overwhelming abundance. This is the way God is. God is like that. We see it all the time. Will Willimon said God could have made one shade of flower, say a red poppy, and this would have been a miracle enough for us. And yet, look at the color of the shapes of the millions upon millions upon millions of flowers. Wouldn't you call such colorful creativity excessive? And all the rich panoply of races, all the colors of people, all the diversity of shapes and sizes, of sound and sense. Here is God who, when he started creating people and flowers and birds and stars, just did not know when to stop. Perhaps with God, creativity is a renewable resource. And you and I, in this story, are invited into this miracle. We find ourselves hanging around with Jesus and our ideas go to work. Our minds go to work. We start to have ideas and, we're asked to, and, and we are asked to offer what little we have to better a situation before we even know it. Before we even know it, we've discovered that love is a renewable resource because Jesus says this, offer me what little you have and I will be extravagant with it. Fish, loaves, money, a law degree, experience in raising children, the ability to write letters, the ability to teach. We offer the little bit that we have. And I know people who, out of their sorrow and their ideas by hanging around with Jesus, find compassion, and then they offer what little they have. And in that compassion, they find themselves extending in an abundant way love and watching love be replenished. I know a lady who gave herself for 40 years to a group of thankless, hopeless elementary school teacher, uh, elementary school children. I know of someone who gave herself to the care of unwed mothers and ran a home. I know of a mother and father who are about to graduate their last kid and who, instead of sitting on their nest egg, have decided to foster more. I know of a man who walked in and said to his employees, I have bad news. I'm too old to run the business, so I sold it. But I also have good news. We built this thing together so I'm giving to you what I got for it. And every employee got a check for $200,000. I know a man who uses his resources as a lawyer to defend death row inmates and to stand alongside children who have committed crimes just so they might have somebody to stand alongside them. And, and he does so because he says... The moral arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice. And here I am, an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, probably one of the worst partiers in the world. Because what I do is I say, I think, I, as being the overcautious parent, are you sure that's a wise thing to do? And there is Jesus. 
There is Jesus standing there who says, you go and feed them with what little you have and I will be extravagant. I am not sure what Jesus was thinking when the whole scene started. Was he considering his imminent death? Was he just thinking about John, perhaps? Regardless, though, I know this, that at the end of Matthew, we read that Jesus was reckless and extravagant in love, even to the point of giving himself his very own life. He poured it all out. So when we're writing emails and we're drawing and we're making masterpieces and we're asking ourselves this question, what does this story tell us about God? We also find ourselves asking the question, in light of that answer, his goodness and his exuberance and his abundance, what does it tell us about us? In reading and listening and hearing this text, we're invited to be extravagant as well because we understand something. We understand that his love is completely and recklessly out of control. I want to warn you, do not hang around with Jesus if your goal is to drive slow and to color in between the lines. Because when love is dished out and we offer what little we have, it's reproduced, it's replenished, it's recycled, it's reduplicated. The old adage is, when we give love, we get more than we ever realized. In all of Jesus' stories, what we find is this, that when he speaks about the nature of the kingdom of God, and that God in his exuberance and his overwhelming abundance extends hospitality and compassion and grace to people who are in need, do you know what happens? A party breaks out. It's time for celebration. And I can imagine myself sitting in this story. And if we recognize that God is good and is overwhelming in his abundant goodness to us and his love to us, and all he gets is a golf clap at the end, then I think it makes him more sad than the day he was there experiencing the death of his good friend John church has a responsibility, a mandate. We respond to this good word. This is the gospel. It is the good news for all people. And we should break out in song and in party. I'd invite you to do that right now. Church, and I belong to you forever.
made a great work of art today. I want, if you want, you can take it home, but I want, if you don't want it, I want you to give it to Pastor Kyle or Pastor Corey or Pastor Jeremy. We would love to display that somewhere so that you can share your artwork and your story about God's graciousness and God's exuberant and extravagant love with the rest of the church. Thank you very much for doing that. For the rest of us, go and tell the story of God's goodness, His extravagant love in your life, and party along the way. You are dismissed. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.